hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Siri, hey Siri. I want to know what the song was, Getting to Know You, what opera, Broadway show it came from. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. Siri, are you there? Hmm, I don't recognize, I don't recognize this. <laughs> okay, forget it. That's Francois Clemens. The first time I called him, I got his voicemail, which went like this. Thank you for calling today. I'm not here, obviously. Please leave your name and your telephone number. At the tone, please record your message. So I sang him a message back that I wanted to interview him for my show, and he said yes. Francois was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1945 on the plantation where his great-great-grandmother, Laura May's family, had been slaves. Then he moved along with his mother and siblings and aunts and cousins to Youngstown, Ohio during the Great Migration. And Youngstown is where he started singing. And he never stopped singing. He sings in the middle of sentences and he sings on the way to the bathroom. But you know him already, or those of you who came of age in the 60s and 70s, For 25 years, Francois played Officer Clemens on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and recently he wrote a book about it called Officer Clemens. Now he lives in Middlebury, Vermont, and I drove over there to talk to him about his life in the South and about Mr. Rogers, who was one of the great loves of his life. And after I took up his whole day, he took me down to his basement and he showed me a special closet full of velvet and sequined coats and purple and red and silver dashikis, and then he showed me to the door, and I could hear him singing after I left. Here's Francois Clemens. When I was a very, very young boy in uh, Mississippi and then Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, my uh, the house was ruled by my great-grandmother, Laura May. And great-grandmama had a, a very, very strong armed approach, but it was a very loving, very loving, very forgiving, very giving, and very uh, nurturing and she was often uh, singing spirituals. She determined the quality, the timbre of the house. So she came out singing, Lord, Lord, have mercy, have mercy on me this day. Ah, it's been a long, hard road, Lord. She came out singing like that. You knew something was wrong. <laughs> I didn't know she was waiting for Mr. Uh, uh, Sanders to come by the house or what had her word, but she was worried, and so she would sing. And the, everybody in the house resonated on uh, what she was communicating. She had a way of letting everybody know he's coming today. There's going to be something going on around here. Mm. And she'd sit down, she might snap some beans or some peas or some, she'd cut some okra, she's doing that, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And me and my brother and uh, the other cousins, because there were myriad of us, would come and gradually uh, sit on around her. And sometimes we'd sing with her. Mm-hmm. Ah. Oh, Lord, it's so hard sometimes. I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, 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 well. Mm-hmm. I hear y'all back there. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord, I, you told me you'd never forsake me. And I'm standing here, your servant, with all my babies around me. Help, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, amen. And then she'd get up with her pan of snap beans or okra or whatever, and she'd go to the sink. <laughs> and all five or six of us would follow her right on into the kitchen because whatever she was doing, she included us. She gave us a little pan with some snap beans, and she set them down and said, now you do like I do. <laughs> so we were there snapping, and she was snapping. And when I was with my great-grandmother, there was peace in the valley. But my parents my father in particular, didn't like living with her because he knew he had to toe the, the mark. She didn't take any shit from him either. He was not a kind. He was abusive. So my grandmother was afraid he would abuse us too because he had abused my, my mother. Oh, my God. Some of their fighting, fights were legendary. It was cruel. And the only thing that stopped it was my great-grandmother, Lala May, who came in and said, give me my child back. Give me my child. If you don't, Willie Clemens, I'm going to shoot you. Ha ha, old lady, why don't you get on back home to your husband? Bang! She shot him. It was like a couple of shots. But those couple of shots could have been lethal. And they weren't. But they put him in the hospital for a while. And while he was in the hospital, my great-grandmother nurtured my mother. Oh, I used to sit there with my between my mother's legs. She had one of those uh, dresses like this. You know, I'd be up in there looking at her. And she... She was um, administered to by my great-grandmother as though she were a child. Uh, even though we had a grandmother, she was usually away <coughs> cleaning white people's houses or laundry, washing, ironing, whatever you do when you work for white people, whatever they required. What was the reason why you were on this plantation in, in the first oh, place? Oh, you want to know that. Because Mr. Sanders wanted my mother close by. Mr. Sanders owned the plantation where my family lived in uh, Louisiana, and he was having an affair with my great-grandmother for some 40, 50 years, since she was 13 years old. She had just started her period, and her mother told her, go on over with him, and he, he's going to take care of you. you. Uh, he was a white person. So when he came around, it's like Santa Claus came around. Not that he brought gifts, but the awe I knew that he was not one of us. I was gradually being told what white people do and what white people don't do. I don't care who it was. As soon as the white person left, whether it was a a farmer or a rancher from some distance or somebody bringing some seed or, or corn or whatever they were planting and stuff, they spoke differently, and I heard it. I could hear it, and I'd think, well, I'm bilingual. I know what she's saying to him. But he, she doesn't talk to us like that. So if somebody came over, first of all, my great-grandmother became very shy if they were white. She's not a shy woman. But 
that was one of her protective uh, mechanisms. So she kept her eyes down, her head down, and she, she, saw, she talked softly. Yes, Mr. Jones. Yes, I understand. Okay, we can bring it over there. Oh, yeah, we know where you live. And all right, sir. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, pre- I appreciate you coming by. Thank you. And then when he left, y'all, y'all better go on, on over there and do what I told y'all two or three hours ago. How come you didn't do it? No, I'm not going to have them. I'm not going to be worried today. All right, now. I done told you. That was the difference. She was, uh, she couldn't come into herself when white people were there. She couldn't be herself. When you say that Mr. Sanders came around, he was having a relationship with her, not, not because she was willing. No, but he was white and he could make her. White people could force any black girl to have an affair with him. There was not going to be any repercussions unless a brother found him out there in the woods somewhere and kicked his ass. But if he were anywhere near the house, then he was fucking her like my grandfather was down, my uh, Mr. Sanders with my great-grandmother down by the barn. There's not a black person in the country could do anything to him. And as he did, he killed her lover, and there was no uh, arrest, there was no inquisition, there was no sheriff, no judge, nobody was going to say a damn thing about it. They buried him in you know a hill near the house where she could go up and plant some flowers and, and uh, grieve. But they knew that if a white man killed a black person, that was the end of it, right there. And then the slave girls were growing, and one of them got to that age of 13 or so, and they, weren't, um, they, were, they were having their period. She was prey of any white guy she ran into. And by that I mean if he was a judge, if he was a sheriff, if he was a farmer. Come over here, uh, Nell. You're looking all good and cute with your little ass out there, your little black ass. Come on over here. And they'd be feeling on her. Nothing she could do. Stand there. Have you been with a man yet? Has a real man got, you know, it's vulgar. It's disgusting. It's what Donald Trump did on the Trump, on the uh, bus. Some people call it the locker room type conversation. But it's low down and it's immoral. You say something, in, you know, that in Ohio you say that you sort of learned, you learned to distrust white people. I wonder why it took that long. It took that long because... You haven't quite grasped how much of a ghetto I lived in. It was the black ghetto in Youngstown. And there was a real distinct separation of the races when it comes to uh, redlining. There were places that if you tried to build there, they'd tell you, oh, Mr. Clemens, you can't build over there. Now I'm telling you. And the Ku Klux Klan would come and take care of that. The irony is, so it's, it was so, so clear that you didn't see it until a certain age, and you started seeing the divide in a more painful way. How old were you when you started to, you know? You... Well, I was in Ohio by that time. I had this Mickey, was my first white friend, and Mickey had a basketball. And that's how I learned about racism and friendship, because we went somewhere, like, around the corner, and there was a basketball court, and everybody played. And so Mickey and I, Michael or Mickey, we went around the corner, and while he and I were there shooting, another boy wants to join us. And, yeah, come on. Well, when the ball came down at a certain point, the other white boy caught it and said, I'll continue to play with you if you don't let him play. He can't play anymore. And Mickey and I said, what? And he said, because he's black. I mean, we were only about seven or eight years old. Mickey said, that is my ball. Give it to me. 
he went and he physically took the ball and said, you're the one who can't play. I can't even remember I tried to go swimming with him once. When we got to the gates of the swimming pool, they said, well, you can come in, but you, you can't come in. They didn't explain to me this is black day and, or white day and you can't come. They just said I couldn't come in. And so Michael said, well, I'm going to go in for a little while. I said, well, okay, go ahead. But I can tell you now that the feeling of rejection and the feeling of sorrow of walking along that uh, chain link-type fence, rubbing my hands along the fence, and Michael was in there playing in the water, having a good time. And those things uh, made me feel like there was something wrong inside of me because I was hurt. But I became aware that they were giving preference to, whi to white people. And there was a part of my stupid brain asking why. Every black child has to go through that. And it's his mother, his aunt, his uncle, his cousin. Somebody has to tell him the story of what it's like. It looks nice. The houses are nice. The lawns are kept. And you get up every morning and do whatever you have to do, going to school or whatever. But there's a devil around here. There's a devil in this country. You don't see him. But he's very, very busy. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. high school, your mother and your stepfather were pretty insistent that you get a girlfriend and would kind of move on with that. And you had left home because of violence in your house. And at a certain <laughs> point, your mother and your stepfather came to the door at your friend's house. Yes. And they, and they confronted me. you. And what happened then? Well, they took me to a, a whorehouse, you could say. <laughs> and so you drove off with... My stepfather. And he, Warren. And you didn't know where he was taking you? No, no, I had never been to a whole house, but I knew that's kind of what he had in mind. I just didn't know where it was. So we went downtown, I, I recognize it, and, uh, <laughs> and we get down to this quiet. Houses were well kept. It was a beautifully manicured, black, bougie, bourgeois place. And we get to the door, he knocks. Hey, anybody in there? Oh, anybody home? <laughs> Tell Nelly I want... I want to talk to her. I need you to do me a favor. What kind of favor? Finally, the door opened and she stood there. A black lady that was reasonably uh, attractive, but showing her parts of her breasts. Not, not, not Warren. You know you ain't supposed to be bringing that young child up in here. 
Where he been? I ain't never heard of you having no son this age. Well, he I know is a son. I told you. I, uh, he came away from college. And uh, I need a favor from you. <clears throat> you need a favor from me. If you ain't got no money, you don't need to be coming up in here talking about a favor. <laughs> he said, oh, no, I, I'm good for you. You know I'm good for it now. You know I've been here. I got about, <clears throat> about uh, $25 I can give you today. And then Petty, I'll come back by. I'll come back right as soon as I get out of the office. You better come back by here. I'll send somebody after your ass. Come on in here now. And, of course, we got in. She said, little bit, you, come on over here. She called me a prissy boy, this sissy boy or something. Charlie got this pretty boy up there in Oberlin trying to give him an education, and he don't know how to beg for some pussy. What's wrong with him? You better come on, go on, boy. Go upstairs there with a little bit. So I went on. I went on upstairs, and I was just in terror the whole time. I was scared to death. I was going to have to perform something I was not capable of performing. And so when I got upstairs in the room, there was nothing in the room but a bed and these walls, which actually were decently painted. But anyway, I said, I have to go to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom right away. What? Child, now you don't got me all upstairs here. And I'm excited about, mm, 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 what we're going to do, do, do. And you're talking about a bathroom. Child, it's down the hall. Go on down there and hurry up back. So I went on down the hall and I went in the bathroom and locked that door. Shit. And, oh, the Lord bless me, I saw a, a window that had a fire escape. And... I opened that fire escape one or so fast that I'm nimble when I was young. I jumped out there on the top step and chip, 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 chip. Then when I got to the bottom, I let go. Child, I started running. It was awful. Every round goes high and higher. Every round goes higher and higher. Oh, every Lord round goes higher and higher. Soldier of the cross. Mm, no. What was what was God for you? When we first got to Youngstown was when I became aware of God, my mother. We'd gather us together in our one-room apartment, and she would, ooh, Lord, have mercy, let's pray. She got all of us kids down, most of the time on our knees. She started calling on God and uh, telling God whew, that she was a single lady. She was there by herself. And he said he would help her. How come he's not helping her now? And she's got these four kids here, and I try to keep them clean and keep food on the table. Thank you for 
this food and thank you for this house and thank you for your mother and your family down south and God help give us uh, the prosperity so that we can get out of this. This is a, a horrible way for people to be and I pray that you will deliver us like you said you would. Whew. We barely had food. I didn't know she had gone downtown to the eight for the uh, single women or some department like that in the middle of Youngstown. But I knew that she came home with groceries. There's a calling out to God, and, and it's emotional for you. But why? Where, where is it coming from? It was emotional because I couldn't help my mother. I was helpless. And I was looking for this God because if I could find him, I would tell him, you need to come and help my mother. You, you're, this, you're a little person and you're watching this appeal that your mother is making mm -hmm. to God. When did you know God for the first time? What did well, that, what did that that's mean? a very good question because I was young enough. Uh, I sang. Swing low. Sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, Lord, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me I was singing that in church, and I felt this thing. And everybody around me, oh, Father, child, you are one blessed child to make me feel, to make me remember. Woo! So I began to sing, and I began to feel that I was ministering to them. I know that's so arrogant. That's arrogant, but it's truth. And the ladies sometimes said to me, child, you're going to grow up to be a preacher. And that was what led me to continue my search because I love singing. And people loved me <laughs> for doing it. I got so many privileges. Like I was a poor boy, so I never had any money. Some of the deacons might walk past me and give me a dollar or two dollars. Or some of them, here, take this boy. So I began to get money from the church members. And as they gave me money, I saved some of it, but I gave most of it to my mother and I felt like I was making a contribution. So I felt that that was one of the answers. That was the way God was trying to help us and say, I hear you. You are not alone. God had answered our prayers about food and a pair of jeans or a pair of coat, winter coat. So I figured then God could help me not have this feeling inside of me that I think they're not going to like. I think I might be different. I don't want to chase girls, and they're always trying to give me a girlfriend. Always trying to give me a girlfriend. And I didn't want one. So there was a point where I was walking and asking God about being gay. I said, do you think I might possibly be gay? Well, the answer was just so overwhelming, yes. <laughs> yes, you are gay. But there was no judgment. There was no hate. God didn't push me away. He told me, when I sing, I please him. God told me, when you sing, the angels get quiet. 
That's what I gave you. I saved the sweetest part for you. I had recognized a softness, a femininity inside of me. And it was sweet. And I loved it. It was warm. It made me sing slow songs. Oh, they mourned and they cried. But I was pulling it from the gay part. I was not ashamed of it when I sang. But in general, on the basketball court or somewhere, I was ashamed and I put it away. Spirit was saying, don't throw it away. Don't hide. Don't cover. And I will take care of you. That soft, sweet part. It's like fudge. <laughs> God likes fudge. And my being gay is like having a mouthful of fudge, honey. <laughs> it's the God's truth. Oh, hallelujah. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say I love you. Well, talking about Fred Rogers, I can go on endlessly. I was in Pittsburgh at uh, the Third Presbyterian Church where he was a member. His wife, Joanne, sat right next to me in the alto section. I was the first tenor. Invariably, she and a couple of ladies would say, you have got to meet my husband. You've got to meet Fred. So the, the organist and I were rehearsing for an Easter program that I did, Lessons and Carols. You know, they do this in all the Episcopal, Methodist churches. 99% white. So I said, why can't you do that at Easter time? And sing, my Lord, what a morning. And Mm, well, him, they laid my Lord again. Oh, they nailed him to the cross. They nailed him to, the, you know, those Easter songs. And I said, let me sing a couple of those. We'll make a program and then let the minister Read passages from the Bible, just like you would with the um, lessons and carols. And I would sing a song related to that scripture. He, he never said a mumbling word. They nailed him to the tree. Lord, he never said a mumbling word. Well, I sang to those people up in there. And the last song was the angels rolled the stone away. Oh, Lord, the angels rolled the stone away. Was on that Easter Sunday morning when the angels rolled that stone away. Yeah, the angels rolled the stone. I sang. I sang. And I went right on in there. I got what I needed. And I came out. They had never had a Good Friday service like that and at the end there was this man and he was standing unhurried he wasn't in a hurry but there was something a calm uh peace about him and as he stood there and i was about to leave but the organist and his wife said oh no 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 no, don't leave this is fred oh that's him oh girl he's so boring <laughs> and they all we all kind of laughed and stuff and i went over and he shook my hand, and there was such, oh, Lord, there was such 
a fire in his eyes when he looked at me. He meant business. He had a long-term plan. And his children, boys were wonderful. They're great friends of mine, but they were not remotely interested in what Fred was doing in that television studio. So he recognized what I am. And he encouraged it and said, come on, bring that over here with you. And he became my, my guru because when I sat with him, I knew that I was in the presence. I knew it. And so... How, how? I knew it because of his... The, the, the nature of the quiet around him. It was not a normal quiet. There was an essence, a, a quality of being quiet that he had. It settled all around. And if you stepped in, you could feel it. You could be a part of it. It never said, oh, no, you can't come here because you're gay or you're black or nothing. It was just there. So I began to fly out to Pittsburgh just to be with him. You, you tell a story, you're in the television studio, and you see Fred Rogers mm, I know that story. looking at the camera, and there's something happening between him and the camera. What, what is happening? Well, it, uh, what, was, what was he doing? It, what, was the, what was in the space between him and the, nothing. And the camera? Whatever it was, it was a sacred space. But there was nothing going on in the, from the distance of his lips to the, that TV screen. It was a sacred space, he told me, and he said, I don't let anybody interfere or distract from that communication. It meant that much to him. And he said, once I'm in that place, uh, nobody bothered him. People left him alone. It was powerful. For all of the children who were watching you on television and watching him on television, what were you... What were you doing to us when in that show? Well, I know exactly what we were doing. We were telling you I love you, unconditional love. That's what Fred did. And so he taught me to do it, to let it go, open that place up. Yes, friends, this is a worthy place to serve. That's what he told me, no matter where you are, because I thought they were kids. No, no, you've misunderstood. You haven't gotten the message. I said, what do you mean I haven't got the message? You love the children, and they love you. No, friend, sit down. Sit down, we're going to spend some time together, and we're going to talk. And so he began to tell me how he loved the children, how he loved them, how deeply he loved them, how much they meant, not just to him or the television program, but for the world. The world must care for its children. If you don't, the children are going to be sick. So you've got to let that flow. And those children will receive. He said, when I'm there in the studio and when I'm being uh, X the Owl or Lady Elaine, one of those puppets, he said, there's a, there's a communication from me, from, from God, to the television. And what he would, the message he was saying. Some of the things were so corny that that grown man used to say. And I used to say, my goodness, Fred, nobody else could say that. And no one who didn't mean it could say it. I would see him in his office answering uh, fan letters from children and their parents. He took such pain. And sometimes uh, he would say, well, come over here, sit down. Let me show you what I'm writing. 
Can you describe it at all? Well, it was always about you are special. Uh, you don't have to do anything to be special. You you should have love. And so he said, you know, playing is your work. Uh, the first time I heard him say playing is somebody's work because I grew up in such a physically strict environment. And nobody had money to have real, what you would call, leisure. Everybody worked, everybody did something. But here I was, uh, well, there was a man of deep, deep holiness telling children, your job is just to play. Go play. There's the singing way to say I love you. There's the singing something special that someone would like to hear. The singing and the singing way. The singing way. The singing way to say I love you. Some very, very, very funny things happened on the show. One of those that we tried to teach him how to say fuck. And Fim, he would do everything but not say fuck. And everybody, of course, was volunteering. Fuck, fuck yeah. Fuck no. <laughs> and Fred never said it. At least on times I was there, he never said it. <laughs> so how did it, so when you came to the crossroads of your sexuality and Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? Well, as I tell you in the book, Fred made it very clear to me. I always want you in my life. You just may not be on camera anymore because Procter and Gamble and jo uh, Jones and Jonesy, uh, Johnson. Johnson and Johnson, and the various uh, Sears, Sears was a big sponsor. They would not tolerate an openly gay actor on camera talking to the kids. So you're having this incredibly. This is a man you love. Are you? Was any? Was there any part of you that just felt disappointed in oh him? Oh Lord, I was not just disappointed. I was shattered. I was shattered that uh, he could talk about homosexuality that way. Because I even then I knew he loved me, but he was telling me where the limit was, and uh, I was I was so disarmingly sad. I said, "The man who has the gift to make my life." Something never to be forgotten is the same one who could handle, hand me the, the, uh, the bomb that would explode and destroy everything. And by me being who I am, no matter how much he loved me, there were certain things he could not do. He could not overcome. It was so sad for me to sit there. I cried, and he tried to comfort me. And uh, he said, I'm sorry, Francois. If there was any way that I could do it any other way, I would do it. The circumstances had tied his hands too. That's what I had done. So his humanity, where he had limitations. And one of them is he could not make the board or those people who were helping him financially in a, a very real way do what I wanted, I needed for them to do or do what he wanted them to do. He too wanted them to say, forget about it, it's not an issue. It was an issue. But... I gradually uh, uh, accepted where, where he was coming from and what he said because I was his son. 
He loved me as though I were his son. One day I went into the studio and I walked around what we call stage left. And I looked over at him and he had the strangest, warmest, wonderful look on his face. It was on camera at that moment. And he said, you know how it is. I like you like you are. And you make every day a special day just by being you. And he's looking right at me. And he walked off the stage. And when Nick, who was the floor manager, said, Cut! Fred and I were almost standing together. I said, Fred, were you talking to me? He said, I've been talking to you for four years. Woo! You heard me today. And I just fell into his arms. It was the most wonderful feeling of acceptance, non-judgment, and I recognized unconditional love. And I lay there in his arms, stood there crying and loving him and allowing myself to be loved. And I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know He watches me. Some guys live in the shadows and they live a very quiet double life in the, in the down low. But I never quite got that formula together and they forced me to behave a certain way. Oh, Officer Clemens, I couldn't go anywhere. Officer Clemens was maybe the most popular policeman in the world. And uh, I wanted a certain kind of popularity. I wanted a certain kind of acceptance. But I didn't realize uh, the sacrifice that it would involve. What did you get that you might not have gotten if you had had some 25-year relationship out with a man? What do, what do you, is there anything that you got instead? Since I didn't have a partner... I could put God first. A partner would have interrupted me and say, oh, honey, I need you to go with me to get so-and-so, so-and-so. Oh, the kids need this and that, and you need to go down and Mrs. Jones and pick them up and bring them over to there. And I didn't have those. I had long periods of solitude. Me and the Lord. I have walked and talked with God. Cleaning up your room can say, I love you. Picking up the clothes before you're asked to. Making special pictures for the holidays. And making plays you. Find many ways to say, I love you. You'll find many ways 
to say I care about you many ways, many ways, many ways to say was Francois Clemens. His book is called Officer Clemens. Additional music for the show is by Brian Clark of Callis, Vermont. I want to thank Dan Bowles at Seven Days for his beautiful article about Francois, which is where I learned that he lives in Vermont. I have a link to Dan's article on my website, and you can find more information about Francois there, too. If you have a comment, I would love to hear from you. Just go to rumblestripvermont.com and go to the bottom of the show page and you'll find a comment box there. I will be sure to pass any comments on to Francois. Rumblestrip is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of excellent independent podcasters from all over the country. You can learn more about us at hubspokeaudio.org, and you might start by checking out the new two-part series on Soonish called American Reckoning about the ragged state of our democracy right now. It's incredibly smart, depressing but smart, and there's some singing. I'll be back soon with more shows. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.